We're going to continue our series, as Robbie said, in the season of Lent, a series that we're calling I Quit. You know, most people during Lent either give up something or every now and then they take on a challenge or take on something that they need to take on. But we're talking about things that we need to give up, things we need to quit. So to get started this morning, I'm going to ask if you'll do something for me. Uh, the two sections on this side, just these two sections, I'm going to ask if you would to turn to somebody uh, next to you in just a moment and express authentic gratitude for something. And it could be anything. It could be your body. It could be your health. It could be your spouse. It could be Jesus. Anything is included as long as it's authentic gratitude. Okay? These two sections on my left, I'm going to ask you also to turn to your neighbor, but I'm asking you if you would complain about something. Okay? It could be anything. It could be your body, your spouse, your spouse's body. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Probably not Jesus. Okay? Let's don't do that. Probably not Jesus, but whatever is authentically, you know, kind of griping you right now, you can complain about it. All right? So everybody just turn two sections here. And take about 10 seconds and do that, all right? Now, does anybody here feel real glad that you just did that little exercise? Okay? Yeah. Yeah, probably not so much this side over here, okay? It's a weird thing. I have never met anybody, anybody in my life who says my goal in life is to complain more. Nobody thinks of it as their spiritual gift. And yet we live in what one author calls the culture of complaint. So I want to tell you, if you've been thinking about cutting down on complaining, you have picked the perfect Sunday to be here. There are basically two ways to quit complaining, friends. One of them is to change your external world so that there are no circumstances left to complain about. That means if you've been complaining about not getting married, you have to get married. If you're married, you have to improve your spouse into the kind of person who would never generate grounds for complaint. If you have one of those jobs, if you, you know, want to change your external world, you have to find one where the boss says to you, what exact hours do you want to work and how much money would you like to make? You'd have to make sure I-4 and South Florida Avenue are always traffic free, right? You have to make sure your dates are beautiful, your grades are all A's, and your relatives are in therapy. <laughs> now that's one way to quit complaining, but there is another one. The other way is not to change your external world. The other way is to change your internal world. It's where you ask God, God, would you give me the kind of inner attitude so that I could receive every day like it's manna from heaven? Could you show me what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he says he had learned the secret to being content in every situation? This is a road that we're going to go down today. And here's the thing. I'm very aware that we still live in a world where there is pain and difficult things and problems. And I want to be clear that we don't want to be just surpy and inauthentic people. We don't want to put on fake smiles and act like everything is okay. So the question is, how do you actually pursue quitting complaining in an authentic way? Well, there are a couple of distinctions in the Bible, and I'm very excited to talk about this today because there's two words in the Bible that are in contrast to one another. An Old Testament expert, a guy named Tremper Longman, talks about these two words. So we're just going to kind of unpack them this morning. Both of these words start with the letter G. They both are things that people do in the Bible when bad things happen to them. 
The first one is the word groaning. Groaning. Now this goes way back in the history of the people of Israel. We're told this, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and was concerned about them. Now this is interesting. This gets remembered and reflected on and put down in the text. Moses, uh, through God, through Moses, through his servant Moses, goes back to the people and says to the Israelites, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant with my people Israel. Now this practice of groaning is a very important part of Scripture. It's included also in the sacred text, the book of Psalms. The psalmist wrote, My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? I am worn out from my groaning. In other words, how long is this going to last? In fact, the psalmist is kind of experiencing what some of you are experiencing, and that is groaning fatigue. Now, it's interesting to note that groaning is actually commanded in the Bible. The book of Lamentations in the Old Testament. You don't get a lot of book of Lamentations at weddings and things like that. But the writer of Lamentations says, Arise, groan in the night. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Look, Lord, and consider, whom have you ever treated like this? Friends, that's groaning. And people do this in the Bible, and they do it in real life, and it's actually commanded in Scripture. Then there's another word, and it also begins with the letter G, and this word is the word grumbling. Sometimes people grumble. We see this in the history of Israel too. The text says, So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? And Moses reminds them about the part of their history. And he tells them, he says this, You grumbled in your tents. That's a very important phrase. We'll come back to it. But he says, You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. It also makes it into the book of Psalms. The psalmist later repeats that phrase. They grumbled in their tents and did not obey the Lord. Now this word grumble, as opposed to groaning, is actually forbidden in the Bible. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. And he says, and some of you know this verse, Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now here's a question. Does anybody in this room ever grumble? If you think that's a trivial problem... You would be wrong. Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says, We have to avoid the sins that Israel committed wandering in the wilderness. And then he kind of gives us a little lesson, a little list of them. And he says, you know, we shouldn't commit idolatry. We shouldn't commit sexual immorality. We shouldn't defy God. And then he says, get this, And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Say what? The destroying angel. So you have two words, groaning and grumbling. Groaning is encouraged, grumbling is forbidden. Now what's the difference? This is very important. Groaning is something I do to God. Grumbling is something I say about God. Groaning I do to God's face. Grumbling I do behind God's back. See, the place where Israel would groan would be on their knees in prayer. This is a very interesting little pray, uh, phrase. The place where they would grumble is in their tents, in isolation. 
where they were free to exaggerate or make up or say whatever they wanted to and whatever they were not happy about. Grumbling, my friends, is destructive. One of the things that experts recommend for teams um, could be sports teams or a church staff or a corporate department where you work is that when there's a problem, they encourage people to talk to each other but never about each other. That's at the heart of grumbling. So what we're going to do in this message is I want to just kind of outline kind of like an anatomy of grumbling. I want us to walk through a time in the history of Israel when this became a huge problem. And we see why it's so destructive. And then we're going to do a little self-assessment as we walk through this about our lives. And talk about how to get liberated from it. Because there is a true, surefire way to get liberated from it. There's a lot of stake here. Because no matter who you are or where you are in your life, complaining becomes a problem at some point. So way back in Israel's history, God delivers them from slavery. You know the story. He literally parts the Red Sea. He sends the ten plagues upon Egypt. He destroys Pharaoh's army. And the very first hymn that is ever sung in praise to God is written, and they sing it on the way to the promised land. Now you would think, after all of that, that they would be grateful for as long as they lived, right? Not so much. A couple of days into the wilderness, they're having a little problem finding water. So the text says, the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Now God, because he loves them, miraculously supplies water, sweet water, for them. So now they're free from the Egyptians, and they have plenty of water to drink. Surely they're going to be grateful for the rest of their lives. Not so much. The whole company of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron there in the wilderness. Why didn't God let us die in comfort in Egypt? (laughs) We would have preferred, they say, just death and comfort. They say, and we had lamb stew. Remember that wonderful lamb stew? How could lamb stew be wonderful? You brought us, Moses, into the desert... Or into the wilderness to starve us to death. And again, God hears them and is gracious and loving. And he provides for them bread from heaven. Do you know the name of the bread? Right, manna. The Israelites named it manna. What is it? Literally, the word manna means, what is it? Or the street name, what it is. I don't know if you can buy it on the street, but maybe. It tasted like kind of like a cracker with honey, so it was pretty good. Now for sure, they've got freedom from the Egyptians, and they've got water to drink, and they've got manna from heaven every day. Surely they're going to be grateful for the rest of their lives. Not so much. The people fell to grumbling over their hard life. They got tired of manna. When God heard his anger flared... The riffraff among the people had a craving, and soon they had the people of Israel whining. Why can't we have meat? We ate fish in Egypt and got it free. Now, I want you to remember that phrase, got it free. We ate fish in Egypt and got it free to say nothing of the cucumbers and the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, and the bad breath. (laughs) But nothing tastes good out here. All we get is manna. Manna, manna. Now I want to tell you something. This is where you start to see how destructive 
complaining and grumbling is and why God takes it seriously. Here's the first thing. Grumbling is contagious. The riffraff among the people, and that is just such a great word. The riffraff among the people had a craving and soon they had the people of Israel. It starts with riffraff and it spreads. Do you know that emotions are unbelievably contagious? They could be the most contagious thing in the world. There was a fascinating study done a while ago. Uh, Researchers took two people and they had them sit in a room facing each other for like five minutes, but they weren't to say a word. All they would do is look at each other for five minutes and then they would walk out of the room. And what they found is if one person were depressed, at the end of those five minutes, the other person was significantly more depressed than they had been before they sat down. Just sitting in the presence of someone who was depressed. Just, listen, just sitting next to a negative person will make you more negative. How many of you, now that you know that, want to change seats from somebody? Right? Everybody starts whining. See, I want to tell you why. I think the reason is grumbling reinforces my sense of superiority. When I'm grumbling about something else, I don't have to look at myself. I don't have to look at my problem, my attitude. And because of that, it becomes incredibly toxic. It is contagious. It can destroy a family. It can destroy an office. It can mess up a church. Listen, I was talking to a minister friend of mine. I've known him for over 20 years. This guy is very competent, a tremendous person. And last year he called me and wanted to go to lunch. And we went to lunch and he let me know that he was taking early retirement. Now he had worked in a denomination's headquarters for a particular denomination for over 30 years of his life. And I said to him, is everything okay? I mean, what? you're still kind of a young guy. He said this, he said, I finally had enough with the never-ending complaints that came into my office. Phil, it affected my health, it affected my happiness, it affected my home life. It was either retire or expire. (laughs) Say something else. Grumbling distorts our perspective, and this is very important. When the Israelites are grumbling about the menu, why can't we have meat? This is what they say. Now think about this. Remember in Egypt, we had fish for free? Really? Does anybody remember what they were doing in Egypt? They were slaves, for crying out loud. And they're grumbling now, and they're saying, we had fish for free. No, you didn't. You weren't even free. And people that grumble think, man, we had it so good back then. See, when I'm grumbling... It causes me to dismiss or blow past or dismiss all the good things God is doing and exaggerate what is so difficult in my life. Give an example. Last summer, I flew home from a trip out west. And when I landed in Tampa, I went to get off the plane and I suddenly realized I didn't have my cell phone with me. And everybody knows that your cell phone is like your woovy, right? I mean, that's just the way it is. And it was a new phone. My old phone had just bit the dust like a couple of weeks earlier. So I began looking for my phone and people started following past me trying to get out of the plane. Brand new phone, so I'm kind of grumbling to myself. And the flight attendant there for Southwest said, it's probably in your computer bag. 
Now, I didn't say it out loud, but I said it to myself like, lady, I'm not stupid. I've looked through the computer back. I got down on the floor. I looked under the seats. I went into the restroom because I thought maybe, you know, I went to the restroom. I might have left it in the bathroom. I come back in my seat. It's still not there. Then I say, you know what? I bet it was the guy sitting next to me. Because I put my phone up on the armrest there for a little while and I went to sleep. I bet that joker stole my cell phone. The flight attendant again turns around. She looks at me and she says, sir, 90% of the time the phone is in the computer bag. So I actually opened and zipped my computer bag and I said, I'm pretty sure it's not in my bag. She pointed in the bag and she said, what's that phone-like object in the bottom right there? Now, do you think that made me happy? (laughs) Why? She was right. I was wrong. It distorts perspective. Now, think about this for a second. Imagine that one of those grumbling Israelites from thousands of years ago could have been magically teleported to me in that moment at TPA. I think they would say something like this. Do you mean to tell me that you got to go on a trip all the way from the other side of the United States and come back to your home the same day to see your wife and kids who you love. And the way you got there, the way you traveled, was this little contraption that you guys call a plane. And you sat in the same seat for several hours, and on it you were able to eat and drink and listen to music and even sleep in air conditioning. And when you got off, you had flown like a bird across the U.S. 3,000 miles. And then, then you had lost this amazing device that enables you to talk to anybody, anywhere in the world, write anybody, anywhere in the world, and look up information that didn't even exist when we were around. And you're grumbling about a total stranger who was kind enough to help you find that contraption? See, I sometimes think if there's just one verse, one verse that needed to be added to the Bible, it probably should have been, suck it up, saith the Lord. (laughs) Right? Right? See, here's the deal. When I groan, I do it in the presence of God. See, groaning is God-centered. It comes on people who are in deep pain and deep sorrow. But they're very aware of a broader context. When people groan, they're still very aware of their insufficiency and their sin. This is why often you heard Dan and Naomi today read from the Psalms. Those were Psalms of lament or complaint. And they very often include confessions of sin. Why? Because people are still aware that they're still sinful people. Very much in need of the grace of God. Very much still grateful to God for His forgiveness. Grumbling, on the other hand, is always self-centered. It's all about me. How come I'm not having fish? How come I can't have meat? How how come I can't have this or I can't have that? It's contagious and it distorts our perspective. And I'll tell you what else it does. Look at this stuff. It goes all the way through the people of Israel. And guess who it gets up to? Grumbling starts to kill the leader. 
It says, Moses heard the whining, all those families whining in front of their tents. God's anger blazed up. Moses saw things were in a bad way. So Moses said to God, why are you treating me this way? (laughs) What did I ever do to you to deserve this? Did I conceive these people? Was I their mother? So why dump the responsibility of this people on me? Why tell me to carry them around like a nursing mother? Carry them all the way to the land you promised to their ancestors. Where am I supposed to get meat for all these people who are whining to me? Give us meat. We want meat. I can't do this by myself, God. It's too much, all these people. Listen, if this is how you intend to treat me, do me a favor and kill me now. I've seen enough, had enough. Just let me out of here. I'm going to tell you, that's maybe not the most spiritually sounding passage you've ever heard. That's a pretty serious complaining about God. You know, that's pretty bad performance review for God. Like, God, I'm not, you know, I'm going to have to cut your pay this month. (laughs) But Moses gets one thing right. And guess what it is? He complains to God, not about God. He goes to God's face instead of going behind God's back. And one of the convictions that I've had while I was reading this this week is I actually have come to the conviction that maybe, maybe one of the reasons that some of us feel so dead in our prayer life and why it's so boring and it's so dull is because maybe there's not a lot of reality going on. Maybe I need to have that same kind of bold, authentic, alive, real, honest conversation with God too. Because here's what I know about God. God can work with groaning. I want to say a word about this to some of you in this room who are hurting. Because in a church like ours, there will be a fair number of people hurting. And if you're not hurting today, I promise you, bad news is, you will. One of the most amazing passages about groaning is found in the Bible. People think groaning is kind of the surface deal, but it's not. The Bible talks about it that it's not just the kind of human, like, be happy stuff. Groaning goes right down to the core of who we are. Paul writes to the church at Rome and he says, The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Look at that word groaning. All of creation is groaning. You ladies who have had um, children in here, how many of you would say it hurt? <laughs> you know, if you didn't have meds, if you had meds, I understand. If you took the wimpy way out, I, no, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. I'm, just, I'm totally kidding. Totally kidding. Totally kidding. Listen, I had meds and I wasn't even having the baby, all right? But if you didn't have Medicaid, how many of you had childbirth and it hurt? Okay. They say it's the most tremendous pain that any man will never know, okay? That's how messed up the world is. That's how broken it is. It groans with that kind of pain. Groaning is what you do when you hurt so much that words can't express it. We love to protect people from it, don't we? But we can't. When our oldest daughter, Sabrina, was just a little tiny thing, her mom had to take her to the doctor to get her vaccinations. She had never gone through anything like that. And uh, later on, she got home, and uh, Robin told me about this big needle that they brought in. She said it looked so huge for such a little baby, and they gave her this vaccination and she cried and she screamed out when I got home I could tell she was still fussy and she still wasn't feeling good 
And I went in and looked at her. Her eyes got really big and she looked at me. She's like, how could you ever do this to me? You know what I mean? It looked like that. How, like every moment up to now, you've just protected me. Why did you hurt me? And I waited till Robin was gone and I looked down at her and I said, honey, this was mommy's idea. I would never hurt you. <laughs> Daddy would never do this to you. <laughs> See, groaning goes way down deep. Creation groans. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Listen, death and sickness and pain and suffering are in our world. And I'm going to tell you something. A happy attitude and a fake smile cannot paper over that. But it's not supposed to. Paul goes on. He says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. Human beings groan. Human beings who call on the name of Jesus, who've been given the Holy Spirit, we're not exempt from it. See, one of the things our church should be is it should be a great place of gratitude where we lavishly, you know, gratefully love God. Where we worship together and we say how great God is. But I'll tell you something else. This place ought to be a place where groaning can come and you're welcome and you're honest and you're real in your groaning. See, sometimes people think if something bad happens and they're sad that they've done something wrong or God did something wrong or we're supposed to be a part of this bargain where if you follow Jesus and you're just obedient, everything will be okay. Not so much, friends. Listen to this mystery. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, not by making things okay, not by even making us thicker skinned, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We don't even have the right words. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Creation groans. People groan. Who else groans? Guess what? God groans. The holy, matchless, wonderful, joyful creator of all that is, is a groaning God. Only the God of the Bible, by the way, is a groaning God. Only the Bible, who made, or the God in the Bible, who Jesus made known to us, is a groaning God. The most mysterious words Jesus spoke on the cross as he was dying, when he was in great physical and spiritual anguish, he groaned a cry. It became known as the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Jesus, God groans with you so that one day you can reign in love and joy with him. I'm going to tell you something. There's no other God like that. God wants you to come with your groanings. But I want to tell you something else. He wants you to stop going through life with grumbling. And this idea of quitting, I quit complaining, is not, listen, I'm filled with just as much negativity and just as much sourpussness, and just as much pessimism and ingratitude, but I'm just I'm going to express it by an act of will, and I'll just act cheerier than I really am. That is not God's will for your life. God's will is that you actually be transformed so that I learn to experience this day, this moment, this second, this place as a gift from God, a gift of grace. You know, we sure are a blessed church. I don't know if you know that. We're a blessed church. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if the level of our gratitude 
achieve the level of our blessing? (laughs) If the level of our gratitude achieved the level of our blessing. I'll tell you a tool that will help you do that. It's been proven down through the ages that one of the things that will help you begin to transfer in, transform into that kind of person is genuine gratitude. One of the ways that we can, the tool that we can use to move out of grumpiness and grumbling is the expression of gratitude. Listen, whether or not you're experiencing the emotion or not. When I was a kid, we went to this thing called Vacation Bible School. And one of the things they taught us, one of the first verses they taught us was this old King James Version of Psalms 100. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. I was thinking this week, that's kind of an odd phrase. Make a joyful noise. Like, anybody can do that. I mean, it's not even specific. What's interesting is he doesn't say have a joyful feeling. He just says, make a joyful noise. Why? Because anybody can do it. You see, here's the deal. It's easier to actuate into a feeling than to feel your way into an action. Here's what I love about Eugene Peterson's The Message Bible, Psalms 100. I love how he writes this. Listen to what he says. He translates Psalms 100. On your feet now, applaud God. That's joyful noise. I was thinking about this. On your feet now, applaud God. Wouldn't it be cool to be a part of a group of people that was really fired up about God's goodness? Now, I realize we wouldn't do this in our church, but some churches might. How cool would it be sometime to be with people? And again, we probably wouldn't do this in our church, but somebody might. Who stop and start thinking, you know, when I woke up this morning... It was a crazy thing. I had water to shave, to shave and shower with. I had clothes to put on. I had a table. I had a fridge. It had some food in it. Maybe not a lot, but it had some. A lot of people in the world don't have that. Then you think about, I get to live on this fabulous planet. Not just a planet with great sunrises and sunsets and trees and birds that sing. But listen, I get to live in Florida on this planet. Like the best part of this planet. Surrounded on every side by God's ocean. Where it's 70 degrees when other parts of God's planet is a negative 120. (laughs) Where we have oranges and strawberries and watermelon. Where we have sweet iced tea and southern cooking and Disney World. (laughs) Not just that... But I have a family and people who care about me. I get to read a book called the Bible where I can learn about who God is. I get this gift called the Holy Spirit who's in my life. In my life. I do not have to be alone. I even get a spiritual gift so I can do something to make a difference in this world. Best of all, I get Jesus. The master of life. Whose teaching still changes the world and is this matchless piece of beauty and goodness. I have forgiveness found through the cross and the death of Jesus. And then I have the resurrection power that comes when he came forth from the tomb. I have eternity to look forward to. 
I really don't have to worry about dying because I believe I'm going to live with God forever, somewhere, somehow. Wouldn't it be cool if someday, I realize we probably wouldn't do it, to be with a group of people who are so excited about God that when the Bible says, on your feet now, applaud God, we actually did that. You know, we applaud the goofiest stuff in this world. Somebody hits a ball with a stick and we go crazy. Somebody runs a pigskin over a line and we go nuts. Somebody gets up on a stage and sings a song and we just get beside ourselves. Yeah, here's the God of our universe doing this every day, day in and day out. See, that's how I come into his presence, and that's how I defeat the chronic sense of grumbling in my life. And then the writer says, bring a gift of laughter. Listen, when you come to church, when you gather with friends, if you're not laughing, what are you doing? Really? Like, some people wondered, like last week, just a few people wondered, why in the world would they do a lip sync battle in a church service? Well, let me explain it to you. Well, for one thing, we were doing a series, I Quit Comparing, right? We were doing a service, and we wanted you to show how we compare one another, you know, in that kind of way. More importantly, it really just helps some of you laugh. And if I could be just totally honest with you, some of you look like you need a good laugh when you come here on Sundays. I'm not saying you're cranky. But you do remind me of the old poem. Remember this poem? I chanced to pass a window while walking through a mall with nothing much upon my mind quite blank as I recall. I noticed in that window a cranky-faced old man. And why he looked so cranky, I didn't understand. Just why he looked at me that way was more than I could see until I came to realize that cranky man was me. I'm going to tell you something. One of the best things we can do in church is laugh. We don't have to laugh at each other, but we can laugh with each other. Then the psalmist says, Peterson says, sing yourselves into his presence. That's why singing is such a good thing. It expresses the heart in a way that just words, just mere words can't always accomplish. And then my favorite part of this. (laughs) He says, enter with the password. Thank you. How many of you got a lot of passwords in your life? Man, let me tell you something. You ever grumble about passwords? I have so many passwords. I have them on my computer. I have them on my bank accounts. I have them on my security stuff. Listen, I actually have a file of passwords that's password protected. And when I forget the password, it causes me to grumble. You know what I finally decided to do? I finally decided to set my password as the word incorrect. So anytime I get it wrong, my computer will remind me by saying, your password is incorrect. (laughs) You can steal that if you want to. Here's a password for going into God's presence. You ready? Thank you. Now this sounds a little weird, but it might not be a bad idea to start asking the greeters at our front door when people arrive at Oasis on Sundays just to say to them, What's the password? <laughs> we'll give the visitors like four, four, four visits to learn the password. 
But when we say, what's the password, you know what you should say? Thank you. It will connect you with God in ways that nothing else can. Somebody told me they actually started doing a little exercise every day and they write down. They don't do it every day, I should say, but they they do it a lot so it doesn't get kind of, you know, rote. They'll just write down five items early in the morning when they get up, five items that they're grateful for. It could be simple things like a cup of coffee, Starbucks, sound of birds singing, conversation with my kids. And what it does is it orients their mind that day to say, what a good God God really is. It's the password. And it reminds them, God's with me today. I'll tell you something. We live in a world that is trying to get us to grumble, 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 grumble. But God isn't in the grumble, friends. God is in the gratitude. We're going to end today with a story of maybe the most grateful person I've ever heard of. I doubt you will have ever heard of this person. She was in the eyes of this world a very insignificant person. Her name was Mabel. And a friend of hers wrote this as he reflected on his friendship with her. This is what he said. He said, The state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. On the brightest of days it seems dark inside and it smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go there. I always left with a sense of relief. It's not the kind of place that you ever get used to. On one particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had never visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped to a chair, a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and the white pupils of her eyes told me that she was completely blind. And the large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek. And he had pushed her nose to one side and dropped one eye and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was now the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisors would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if they can stand this, they could stand anything in the building. I learned that this woman was 89 years old. And that she had been here bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. Her name was Mabel. I don't know why I even spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that place. But I put a flower in her hand and I said, here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it. And then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, though somewhat garbled by her deformity, were obviously produced by a very clear mind. She said, thank you, it's lovely, but can I give it to someone else? I can't see it, you know, I'm blind. I said, of course, and I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one, I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That was when it began to dawn on me that this was no ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her and her history. 
She had grown up on a small farm that she had managed with her only, only her mom until her mother eventually died. And then she ran that farm alone until 1950 when her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent hospital. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches, backaches, stomach aches, and then the cancer came. Her three roommates were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally but never talked. They often sold their bedclothes, and because the hospital was understaffed, especially on Sundays when I would visit, the stench was often overpowering. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks. I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a little tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read to her from the Bible. Often when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory, word by word. On other days, I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she would know all the words of all the old hymns. And for Mabel, they were not merely exercises in memory, because she would often stop in mid-hymn and comment on the lyrics. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain, except in the stress that she placed on certain lines and certain hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder. I would go to her with a pen and paper to write things down that she would say. And what follows is a story behind one scrap of that paper. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed pulled in ten different directions with all the things I had to think about. And the question came to me, what does Mabel think about? Day after day, week after week, year after year, not even being able to tell if it's day or night outside. So I went to her and I asked Mabel, what do you think about when you're lying here? This is what she said. This woman who lay alone for 25 years, she said, I think about Jesus. I sat there for a moment about and thought about how difficult it is for me to think about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked, what do you think about Jesus? And she replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote. And this is what she said. I think about how good he's been to me. You know, he's been awfully good to me in my life. You know, I'm kind of one of those people that's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And Mabel began to sing the words of an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He's my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I'm sad, to him I would go. No other one can cheer me so. When I'm sad, he makes me glad. He is my friend. You see, friends, this isn't fiction, as credible as it may seem. A real human being actually lived like this, unable to move, unable to see, unable to talk to almost anybody. And what kept her going was one single word, gratitude. And from the perspective of everyone on this planet, she was someone to be most pitied. But the truth about her life, the truth about her life is of all the people on this planet, she was the one to be most envied. Because she had the one thing that was worth having. And that was gratitude. And the truth that you will probably never hear outside of church is this. 
that one blind, crippled, abandoned, forgotten, insignificant old woman with this gratitude is by far more powerful than all the CEOs and celebrities and movers and shakers who will ever live without it. Mabel knew gratitude and because it she knew Jesus and because it she did not sit there or lay there and grumble and complain every day of her life. Father, today we arrive at the end of another journey together as a community. And as often happens, God, these last few moments are really kind of the turning point. The time when we stop talking and we start responding. And this morning, God, as we come to the table, we're going to partake and actually participate And one of the things that can help us move past this complaining spirit in our life. So in these next few moments, bring to our minds, I pray, by your spirit, the exact words and the exact thing that we need to pour out to you, either through groaning or gratitude. Let something supernatural and even something natural happen in our lives because of your presence here. I pray that in Jesus' name.